0: This is part two of episode 31 on the Tactical Breakdown podcast from our instructors' roundtable on officer involved shootings. Here you go.
1: Welcome
0: to To the the Tactical Tactical Breakdown, Breakdown,
2: a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals.
0: Stand by where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and
2: leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin.
0: All right, this is part two of our three part episode here. We pulled the audio from our instructors' roundtable on officer involved shootings. And this is just for those of you who enjoy listening on the go, in your car, while you're on a run, at the gym, mowing the lawn, doing whatever. I uh, hope you guys are enjoying it. I hope you're finding the information actionable and useful. And if you are, please consider subscribing to the podcast. We're going to have a whole bunch more coming your way very, very soon. With this whole COVID-19 outbreak, there is going to be an excess of of interviews that i'm going to be conducting and i'm going to be putting all these out there rapid fire for everybody so if you want more content well you're going to get probably more than you can handle come very very soon so i hope you enjoy that and let's jump right back in to this episode and get back to the round table let's get into it
3: Guess what I'm trying to, and, and, and this has been a source of frustration for me over the course of, you know, my 20, 25 plus years of, of, of doing this job. Why is it that we have a different set of rules for police officers than we do when we're trying to investigate the death of other people in other professions, but we don't do that for law enforcement? So we label it a criminal investigation. We label it an administrative or internal investigation right away. Well, when you do that, if officers have attorneys in those types of situations, well, they're going to exercise their rights under, you know, a criminal investigation. They may exercise their rights under Miranda. They may exercise their rights under Garrity or Liebarger, you know, uh, for those people out in California. And I'm sure there may be something um, similar in, in Canada. So, I guess I I take issue with, um, the judge that, uh, that, uh, um, Jim was referring to, and I'm familiar with him being, you know, I know he talks uh, uh, on television and, and he's been a guest speaker and, and I do respect him, but I too disagree with, with his, his uh, position, you know, that officers, you know, should be required to give a statement within 24, 48 hours. I, 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 I just disagree with that because we don't require it for individuals in other profession when people have died but we do it for law enforcement or we want it done for law enforcement or we're mandated that it be done for law enforcement. And it's just not fair because if we're really trying to search for the truth, and and by the way, I'm a huge fan of searching for the truth, <laughs> but if we're trying to search for the truth, then we should know that there are certain things that happen you know, following a traumatic event. Um, and, and these officers, when they're involved in these types of situations, uh, they're, they're they're victims to a crime. And, and we don't expect our witnesses or victims to criminal activity to give statements within 24 to 48 hours. Yet we expect our police officers to do that. And I, I take issue with that.
1: That's yeah, a good point. Especially when you're putting specific timeframes on it, 24 to 48 hours. So at 49 hours, it's an irrelevant <laughs> statement or not admissible. And what if the officer's injured and can't, right? The officer right. got shot as well. Okay, so he's non-complying with a policy now. Well, I can't. I've been shot, right? Or so may we started
3: under narcotics? You know, because he suffered the great injuries, okay. and if he's under the influence of narcotics, how in the world can can you expect him to be the statement, right, Chris?
1: Right. And like we, our involved officers go to a hospital, right? You get checked out by a doctor, um, you, know, you know, physically, uh, mentally as well. You go see the trauma doctor at the hospital, right? And he can prescribe any meds to, uh, you know, um, help calm you, etc. cetera. Right? And sometimes we get a little pushback as to why are you going to see a doctor? Uh, why is this happening? He says, well, because we should. And the officers are say, no, I don't want to right now. Well, don't just think of yourself, think of the others that you may they may have to go right yeah. and it, it seems like you bring a prisoner into the booking hall, he's got a hang mail take take him to see uh medical advice right for us, you sit around twelve fourteen, eighteen hours waiting because you're a witness officer you have to give a statement have to, and you're not leaving until you do now I've been here at work twenty hours twenty one hours at what point in time is you know my statement going to be contaminated because i got a screaming headache. I don't know whether, you know, am I having an aneurysm is a hypoglycemia. If I have a migraine, what is it? Right. So, you know, in, in that aspect, exercise your rights, so I have to see medical uh, medical, attention. Uh, medical, uh, officers especially and to limit it on a time frame, It has to be between 24 and 48. So at 23, I can't give it. And at 49, it's no good. Right. So, mm-hmm. so whenever it, it's possible, um, we don't have to give one uh, in our province to the SIU as a subject uh, officer but our internal affairs or professional standards we do have to do our uh, uh, compelled to do a statement as well right? but again it's not it's non-disclosable non-binding in the uh, uh, it's not given out to the SIU right so do they
3: do they have a time frame to give that compelled statement Chris?
1: No, we haven't. Don't have it actually written down into the hours. It's you know as soon as practical. You know, take into account, officers could be injured, officers could be under stress, etc. Right? You know, so it, it's going to be soon. It won't be six years, eight years, or something like that. It, it's got to be right. you know reasonable. Before they
2: die before they die. Right? <laughs> so, uh, two other
0: two other questions that were raised on this specific topic. Uh, we're talking rights and we're talking interviews. One being that should we be interviewing or should we be reading officers rights so you know whether it's um rights and cautions in canada or miranda rights in the us should that still be happening um one of the people that uh, one of the subject matter experts that wrote in says in california they still in a majority of the instances they are still being read miranda rights and the other thing being when we do interview officers the point that they made was that there should be a real effort made to interview them outside of the usual interview rooms where they usually interview suspects, because it places them in a in a horrible mindset. Obviously, being put in the same room as the people that you've interviewed as suspects multiple times. So, what are your yeah. thoughts
2: on that? I, I'm not an attorney, but I play one on TV. Um, so
0: we I, have one. We have one.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. So before Laura gives the right answer um let me let me tell you this i i, I have uh, again around the country you get the, the greatest thing about doing what we do is we get to meet all these officers around the country and I, i've been told several times on the scene on the scene first the responding supervisor read the guy this one guy told me he goes as soon as he got there he read his me my Miranda rights before he did his his um uh his uh, public safety uh statement you know he answered those questions so, you know, my question you know, to Laura, you know, anybody can answer this, but if, if first off, a Miranda in the U.S. doesn't apply at that point. I mean, if the officer's not in custody, uh, you know. Uh, but if you do read Miranda and he goes, okay, I'm not talking, now what? I want an attorney. I mean, can you do Garrity at that point? I mean, it, 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 it's – and it, plus it puts the officer immediately on the defensive, like, yeah, I'm not saying anything. I'm not going right. to tell you which way I was pointing when I shot. I'm not going to tell you if I'm hit. If I'm hit
1: yeah. Yeah.
3: Right. You know, you, br- you bring up a, a, an awesome point, Jim, um, because I, I've, I've been involved in a situation where my clients have been read Miranda. And uh, it's part of a, an administrative investigation. And, and I've called the investigator out and I said, you know, I asked him and I wasn't being cute. But, you know, I asked him, I said, is my client under arrest is he in custody? And and uh, the investigator says no, he's not. And I said, well, why why are you reading him Miranda? Well, just to be safe. To be safe, and I said, yeah. from what? From what? <laughs> from what? You know. And so so and and I'm not I'm not making fun of uh, you know these investigators because um, oftentimes these investigators they don't have the training and and quite honestly you know what we're talking about this subject of officer involved shooting. And um, you know, the, the immediate aftermath, this subject matter has only become um, part of the limelight or has, has seen the limelight you know, in the last five, 10, maybe 15 years, right? So, so this is something where I would say, you know, given my experience in talking across the country and meeting police officers from across the country, just like Jim, you know, you hear these horror stories, right? And and you've got investigators that have no business being an investigator. And basically, you know, the livelihoods of these officers are in the hands of these investigators that don't understand video, that don't understand cognitive interviewing, that don't understand memory recall and all of the stuff that that follows, you know, in these types of officer involved shooting incidents. And that's quite concerning. So it's it's a problem. It's a problem. And so I wanted to to touch, um, just kind of um, expand upon what the question was uh, that Adam brought and what uh, Jim had highlighted. You know, there are multiple investigations that take place following an officer-in-bell shooting. We've got the criminal investigation of the suspect. We've got the criminal investigation of the officer. And we've got the administrative or internal investigation of the officer. We may have the unbiased investigation by an outside agency just to see what happened or to find out what happened. If you're part of a large agency, and Steve, you can disagree with me on this, but there may be a risk management investigation or a litigation or pre-litigation type of investigation that, that uh, follows an officer-involved shooting. All of these investigations may have different rules that are associated with it. Okay, so it is it is very unusual. For example, um, officer to be read Miranda warnings in an internal affairs investigation or an administrative investigation. When I hear that, I immediately have concerns for my my client because that tells me that, you know, the person who is kind of like the intermediary between, you know, in in the state of Illinois, uh, the intermediary between the state's attorney and and my client, um, it's like uh, the concern that I have is that, He's not familiar with the rules of the game, so to speak. And and what I would like to see, and I've been preaching this for years, and and I don't know if it's falling on deaf ears. Um, I sort of alluded to it earlier. But if we're really searching for the truth, and I think everybody is in the business of searching for the truth as to what happened, right? If we're searching for the truth, and why do we have to label the initial investigation a criminal investigation? Why do we have to label the investigation an internal investigation? Why can't it be investigation? Because going back to the the incidences involving an Amtrak crash or a plane crash or the Deepwater Horizon, we had what I call investigations, right? Just trying to figure out what the hell happened. And then only afterwards, once, you know, the investigation reveals certain information, then we can start a criminal investigation or perhaps an internal investigation. But I think these, these you know, by labeling these investigations as a criminal investigation or an administrative investigation, I think that hinders the search for the truth. You know, if if that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and, Labeling them, it becomes other people's perceptions and pretty soon perception is reality, right? right? You're saying it's a criminal investigation. We're going to start thinking, oh, I did something wrong. He's a criminal. He's getting investigated, right? So you're absolutely right. When we start labeling it, you've made a predetermination probably for other people, right? If they're not truly uh, understand the, the process, um, then they just look at what it is and they, they'll, they'll go ahead and say, oh, it's a criminal investigation. They've done wrong. Okay. Right, and internal, and certain connotations. Thing there's an, an internal affairs investigation. It has a connotation of many kind of corruption, wrongdoing, etc. Right, so you're absolutely right. Just call an in investigating, It has to be investigated. This incident, this event, needs to be investigated.
0: All of you have all of you been through force science? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. right. So you yeah, have. Do you think that there should be a standard? Now, I'm not necessarily saying that everybody should go through force nights. But should there be a standard for every person who will be investigating an OIS incident? Should there be a minimum standard that they have to go through? And what would that standard look like? Uh, yeah, I just I, want to say, I,
3: can, go ahead. I, can I say something first, Steve? Um, I would recommend that, some, that every investigator who's involved in investigating officer-involved shooting or an officer use of force needs to go through the, some training regarding um, human behavior, um, whether it's for science or some other organization, um, It should they should have that training. Right. More importantly, and Steve, I'll, I'll, I'll let you speak on this, but more importantly, I wish our prosecutors, the district attorneys, and the state's attorneys had that training because the livelihood of both officers is in their hands and many attorneys, they don't even have a clue as to, you know, human dynamics and, and why it is that an officer shot somebody in the back. Because uh, um, there are plenty of attorneys in the world that the argument is any time that an officer has been shot in the back, well that's that's an execution of the of the suspect. And then we've got DAs and states attorneys that agree with that, and it's because of the lack of training. So, so I'm going to get off my high horse. I, I do think it's important that our investigators, and more importantly, our our charging the people who are responsible for charging um, individuals with criminal conduct, um, they receive that training. So, Steve, I. I, I
4: No, I was just going to say the same thing, kind of what you said, Laura. I I agree with what Adam said when he posed that question. Should should investigators have some type of standardized training, whether it's force science or something comparable? And force science is the preeminent um, agency to train regarding any use of force and human dynamics and performance. So I would recommend that wholeheartedly to the point where I can say that when the Department of Justice came in to look at the police department policies, and they came in – In May of 2013, the Philadelphia Police Department had 14 police shootings in the month of May. Four of them were fatals. And then Commissioner Ramsey was taking some heat from the media, from the public, and he asked the Department of Justice to come in and look at everything used to force-related, training, taser, deadly force, everything. I specifically remember when the two DOJ investigators came in to interview me and my counterparts, and when they heard that we were trained by the Force science Institute. You did for science. We want to do that. We're trying to get that. So, Yeah, I agree. Laura, everybody, especially investigators and not because you're trying to uh, learn something that's going to help the officer. That's not the purpose of it. What the purpose of it is, is to understand human dynamics in a high stress event. It applies to not just police officers, but critical witnesses as well. And And whether we touch on that, I'm sure we will at some point in this podcast for talking about video and audio evidence and, a critical witness who obviously they're not in the shoes of a police officer, but they're going through something traumatic to them too. Um, some of those things we have to understand apply to them as well, what they can't remember, what they can't see, what was right in front of their eyes. And they're telling me, oh, I, did, I didn't see this. And then you show them video and they say, Oh my God, I didn't even realize how did I miss that? So to be able to understand that is vital.
2: You know, I was um, uh, in our department. I was the first uh, sex crimes investigator went to a week long course on that. And then I was one of the first two arson investigators. So we went to, to Oh, MS Park, Maryland, the Chicago fire Academy down to Fletsy. So we were specially trained to deal with sexual assault victims. And we were specially trained to read a fire and, uh, understand, um, you know, the nuances of what uh, an arson compared to a, you know, a normal fire, but around the country, um, and uh steve you you brought this up and sort of laura around the country uh, we we we're, we're giving the the job of investigating a, an officer involved shooting often uh maybe not the big departments like yours uh steve but often to regular investigators as though well yeah you're a good investigator in this area so you naturally can do this and that's that's nonsense we um uh, cal- exactly. this isn't the push caliber but we we have a couple of classes. One note, we just, uh, we, uh, we, we partnering with a uh, Jamie board and uh, some of you guys know Jamie, um, was, you know, you know, yeah. For science, he's doing it. He's doing a, a two day course for us now. Um, and basically how to investigate an officer use of force through the prism of human performance science and, you know, the dynamics of human performance. Um, and it, it's it's already a popular class because it, like like anything else, we should be specially training these people to look at it. And then I, you know, one time I was teaching in uh, Wyoming, and we have a one-day class basically called Human Performance, and we show a lot of videos and we talk, you know, time-motion studies, how fast somebody can turn, how long it takes you to decide to shoot, where you pull the trigger, how fast can somebody raise a gun and shoot? You know, you you guys know all these these statistics, but. Uh, there were 36 uh, prosecutors in this course, and I did this this exercise on memory, and I showed them a 20-second clip of an officer-involved shooting, a 20-second clip. There were 36 attorneys, and I told them all, write down what right. happened. How many different versions of, of that shooting did I get? 36. I had two <laughs> of them yelling at each other, uh, arguing about whether the officer said drop the gun or drop the knife. Yeah. So the the lead attorney told told me at lunch, he said, Jim, I've never even heard of these concepts before. And I always assumed if an officer's statement didn't match the video or the officer's statement didn't match the three witnesses, that the officer was just lying.
0: Hmm.
2: So, you know, this science, somebody said to me, well, it's new science. And I said, you know, I looked up the first time. Human performance science was mentioned. It was 1868 that I found. So yeah, we're usually about 150 years behind the rest of the world. Um, but uh, you know, but we need to be we need to be specially trained. And I, and let me just segue into something else here because I know there's a couple of questions about whether officers should be able to look at their video. But uh, you know, Laura talked about all the different entities that are doing these investigations. I have an article. I think it's coming. It's coming out in the next couple of days. It was edited today about a case in Oakland where these officers shot a guy who had a gun and they were cleared by the, they were cleared by um, uh, two different investigative bodies and the chief of police. Uh, but then the oversight civilian board, they looked at it and said, right. no, no bad shooting and fired all four of them. When the chief, right. the chief uh, backed them up and um, she wound up losing her job, whether that had anything to do with it or not, I'm not sure, but it, Timings coincidental maybe but what these with these people on the board and, and let me give let me give them you know look at them in the best light that they actually are on the board because they want to be involved in improving law enforcement you know behavior or whatever. Uh, um, they have no training, zero training, none. They've never heard the term human performance science. And what they said was, well, he never raised the gun, so it's a bad shoot. But we all know that you can raise and shoot it in about 2100s of a second. Right. And you can't pull the trigger that fast. So five civilians who are appointed by the mayor, who are all people normally, the only thing they have in common is saying the police are always doing something wrong, are now on a board. And they do the investigation with what type of experience? Right.
0: You know, it's really interesting. And, and, and Jimmy,
1: further to that, like all the investigative techniques and stuff, where are some of the investigators, uh, especially from the uh, outside bodies, um, when it comes to the use of force, the use of force policies and the use of force training that has occurred with the officers? Right. It's one thing to in, investigate. um, mm-hmm. The irregular homicide—it's kind of a who done it. Different with a uh, police shooting because you know all the players are known, right? right? And you know legally we're allowed to go out, and uh, you know, if we have to obviously within our parameters, uh, we're legally justified in uh, discharging firearms uh, at, at people. Um, the you know irregular like street homicides, like well who done it? Not allowed to. So it can, uh, a lot of the nuances there and the performance dynamics don't come into place. But with uh, police, obviously, we have to look at the use of force policies as well, not just all the dynamics of how this occurred, but how does it fall in line with the policies and the training of the officer?
0: It's really interesting. So, Jim, you had brought up um, the comments that were made here. And just to kind of go back to it so we don't forget about them, because we'd already talked a bit, a little bit about the body-worn cameras. Um, and the two questions that had come up um, was this one <laughs> here. Um, basically asking if should an officer be permitted to view body work camera footage prior to making a statement. And then yeah. the, sec- the second one being, um, could it potentially hurt or help if they're allowed to review the footage? Now, it's, yeah. it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Those okay, are good. loaded question. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and uh, so... It's really interesting. So we were talking human human factors, and I know Steve has something about this too. But I mean, we talk about auditory and visual exclusion. We talk about memory lapses. We talk about all these different things. Um, and Jim had brought up a, a video, um, an old video, and he when we had talked yesterday. So I actually have it queued up, Jim, if you want to speak to it. Um, but the selective attention test and kind of how it's used as a, a great example for for what just if for somebody who doesn't know anything. It's a great way to show people, hey, this is how the mind actually can work.
2: Well, you already tested my my memory because I don't remember talking to you about this. <laughs> <laughs> all that right. That could be age, though. You know,
0: Touche. Okay, so I'll I'll bring right, it up man. full screen. Um, and um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to mute it. Um, and then if if you guys want to talk over, Jim, you can kind uh, of explain.
2: Yeah, let it me, I, if, if you guys. I, I show this um, and it's all the way you really set it up. And I really challenge everybody in there that nobody ever gets it right. You have to follow the uh, team in white nice. and bouncing the ball and nobody ever gets it right. But usually if somebody does, it's a female. So you guys almost never. So I, I really get them to focus on the people in white. you count how many times they pass the basketball. You're never going to get it guys. It's too complicated. Uh, so I really set it up to challenge them. So what are they focusing on the white? Right. So the people who watch this thing right now, uh, if you're, j- you're just focusing on the white team passing the ball, you obviously miss something that's, that's kind of important. So, so yeah. So, uh, what is that, 13, I think? Is, is I that, think it
3: I is 13, 15. Right? Oh, there we
2: go. 15 passes. But, again, did you see the, the gorilla? The gorilla. So they showed over and. And I actually talked to the um one of the professors who did this, uh, Chris Shabri, he, he used to be at Harvard, he's now at University of Illinois, at least last time I talked to him. And uh I think it was I think it was 70 somewhere in the area, 70, 75 percent. Don't see the the gorilla walk through. And, and it's simple to know why, because it's selective attention. At that point, and the more you challenge them, the more they're okay, I'm gonna prove this this guy is wrong. I can count these damn balls. And so when I did it, it was easily over 80% uh, that did not see the gorilla because their brain is selectively attending to white. So their brain says discard black at that point, just just white. Uh, mm-hmm. But I did – I now I do remember talking to you about this. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a great book out there written by Shabri and I think um, – oh, okay, uh, uh, Dan Simon and Chris Shabri. Dan Simon is the one I talked to, I'm sorry, down at University of Illinois. And the name of the book is The Invisible Gorilla. Have any of you guys read that book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
3: I've it's heard of it.
2: Remarkable yeah. book. I, yep. I I highly, in my classes, I go look at If you're an investigator, if you're a boss, you should read this book. And it starts out with a really, really interesting story from Boston. And I believe the uh, officer's name is Kenny Connolly. Do you remember this, Steve? Yep. And Kenny Connolly is chasing a murder suspect. So as he's chasing him, He's focused on this guy because he may turn on the officer and shoot him. You know, well, at the very same time, and the guy he's chasing is a black male, a undercover or plainclothes black male police officer is helping look. Right. And four officers come across him and he he resists the four officers because he's trying to tell me he's, he's a cop. Four officers, you know, jump on him and give him a couple of whacks. When they realize he's a cop, they all get up and run and nobody leaves their car to say, "Hey, I'm the one to just beat the shit out of you." Right, Right. so um, the only the only person the officer who got beat up can identify is Kenny Connolly because he says, "Well, I'm on the ground. I looked up and I saw Kenny Connolly run by me, and he said Kenny Connolly looked at me." So later on, after he's a hero catching the bad guy because the guy jumped over the fence, Kenny goes over the fence, catches him, boom, he's a hero, he gets an award. They bring him back, or I believe they brought him back to the scene. Mm -hmm. And if they, they, they had figured out it was 26, I think, Steve, about 26 feet away. Correct. Yeah. Kenny, Kenny literally said to the investigators, yeah, I got to believe I would have seen that because he believes because he's not trained in this either. Yeah. How can I not see that? It's right there. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was convicted. He lost his job and was convicted of perjury. Mm-hmm. Now, the whole thing was overturned. Mm-hmm. but It wasn't overturned because of the science of this. It was overturned because yeah. of prosecutor, prosecutorial misconduct. Right. And he got his job back, and I think he got 650000 dollars in back pay. But even Kenny at that point, under no stress, says, yeah, right. how could how I miss oh. that? Right. So I guess the point is this, is that this is very rudimentary stuff about human factor, right. science, performance, whatever. If you don't know this very basic type stuff, you should have nothing to do with any type of an investigation of an officer involved in any kind of force, is my belief.
4: Right.
3: I echo
0: that actually. Steve, you you showed me a video um, also, and, and it's on the same topic. I don't know if you have that queued up or not on that uh, that PowerPoint.
4: I uh, do, Jim. I'll bring it up here. Just one here.
0: Yeah, share your share share your PowerPoint with the screen, and then I'll bring it up onto the I'll bring it up on the screen here. Okay. Um. Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot. Well, he's, well, he's bringing that up. There's a lot of things that came into this. So I wanted to discuss because a lot of the people that listen to this are either instructors or trainers at their agencies that could possibly be involved with investigating these incidents, or they're the general officer, and you know, it's important for them to understand that you know what, it's okay that you don't remember certain That's things. Right. Like it's okay, it's can okay. You that I'm wrong. Can you see that up on the screen or now? No, you got okay. to um, hang on a second. I'm gonna pop three of you up, and Steve and I we're gonna we're gonna jump off for a second. I'll walk you through it. All
4: right. I think an application window. All right. Let me see if I can get this here.
2: You know what you're doing? It, I'll tell you. I was talking to a, um, a chief of police once. It happened more than once. I had a couple of them tell me that they think this is just pseudoscience. And then I talked to a prosecutor at some point, and he said the same thing. And I said, what what part don't you believe? And they said, I don't believe in tunnel vision and auditory exclusion. Mm. And I said, well, that's that's ridiculous. And I had had mentioned a stat uh, from Four Science, I think it was. that said something to the effect. 75% of officers involved in shootings get um, uh, tunnel vision, reported getting tunnel vision. And I always say, yeah, that's nuts. It's 100%. Uh, they just don't know they got it and the reason I know that is even in the class I go look at when I show you a video up here and you're focused on a video you're not even involved in this you somebody coughs in the back you don't pay attention to it because you're trying to focus on the point of the video so your brain says don't need to cough you don't know what the guy doing next to you he's moving around maybe takes a drink of his coffee or something you don't see that even though he's in your field of vision I said this is this is constant and, and for you to think it doesn't it, you know, it doesn't become intensified under high stress. That doesn't make any sense.
3: No, I agree with you. And and just following up on that with what you said, Jim, um, Dr. Lewinsky from poor science, he uses, um, you know, just regular videos of, 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 people in various professions doing certain things. And one of them is, uh, you know, the professional baseball players that get paid millions of dollars to catch a fly ball. Right. And then, um, you know, and I'm not a huge baseball fan. My husband is a diehard Cubs fan. So you can imagine how frustrated he gets sometimes, but uh, you know, how is it that you can explain three outfielders that are going after a fly ball and they can't see the other person or hear the other person saying, I got it, and then all three of them crash into each other, and then the ball lands in front of them. How do you explain that unless you recognize that there's tunnel vision or something else going on?
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's, it's, not, it's not pseudoscience. It's 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 science. It's reality. Everybody experiences it on a daily basis. So anybody in a in a power position who tells me that it's pseudoscience. What they're telling mm-hmm. me is they are not, they, they're not – their their mind is not open to the reality of what's going on.
1: Right. <laughs> we got to – You, had something you to teach what? it in your vehicle operations, right? You're you're going to get that tunnel vision when you're in a pursuit, high-speed pursuit. Right. And they buy into it on that, but they're not going to buy into it on a shoot. Yeah, right. Where there's actually a threat to you. But, right. but when it comes to driving, you're going to get tunnel vision. You know? right. yeah. Look where you want to go. Look at the pole. You're going to hit the pole. Excellent point. But here they go no, –
0: all right, so we got Steve's um, PowerPoint queued up here, so I'm going to share it with uh, with everybody, and Steve can can walk us through it.
4: Okay, what you're going to see in this is a um, two police officers on foot and one in a car chasing a suspect with a gun. The male throws the gun, tries to throw it up onto the roof. It doesn't make it. It bounces off the wall, lands on the sidewalk. Two, One officer literally almost steps on it. The other one kind of runs by it. Let me play it for you. You see the suspect here with the firearm. Gun misses, lands right on the street, uh, right on the pavement. Officer runs right by it, almost steps on it. The second one will now come. So, you would say, point if you're an investigator who hasn't been trained in terms of how to interview somebody, where say, oh, well, I asked, did you see the guy? did you see the gun there? No, I never saw the gun. Well, you stepped on it. You almost stepped on it. Oh, I don't know. And now we're going to whack the guy because he didn't see a certain thing that was in his field of view. Um, so that's kind of just a little illustration. But getting back to the original question, Adam, that you posed that I know some of your um, some of the folks watching posed about showing body-worn camera video. Uh, my answer to that is this, and it's it's changed over the years, but Video evidence is an investigative tool, just like audio evidence. Is. So if there's anything that I can do to help an officer to jog his memory, to help them recall something, then certainly I want to use that. Under that old format where I wouldn't get to interview the officer for some five months later, if I had video back then and we didn't have as much then as we did now, I would certainly show him the video pre-interview because I want to refresh his memory. I'm not giving him the answers to the test as what the uh, thing I'm doing. That's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to refresh their memory. Um, Nowadays, if I'm interviewing an officer, if I were interviewing an officer under this new format, which is they're going to get a compelled interview by the IED side three days after the event, if I need to use video while I'm interviewing the officer to refresh his memory about something, whether it's during or after, which is kind of what I lean towards now, then to me, there's no problem to do that. Again, for the purpose of I want to jog their memory, I want to get the greatest recall of the event. Recognition facilitates recall, as Dr. Lewinsky taught us. And if you see something, it's going to jog your memory. I've seen that happen countless times when I would interview an officer where they look at a video and say, oh, my God, I completely forgot. When I got out of the car at that point, looking at it in the video now, I forgot I saw a, a mother with her daughter there, and I waved her away. So that was the first I saw the suspect, and I was telling her to get to safety. I would use this analogy too, the coronavirus right now. Say if Bob, who works at the IBM, and there's 200 employees at the IBM plant, and Bob contracts the coronavirus, and he's in the hospital, he's going to survive. He'll be okay. But the CDC investigators are at the hospital. They're in their hazmat suits. They're talking to Bob because they want to find out over the last two days who who the IBM employee came in contact with. So they're talking to him. They say to him, hey, Bob, how many people did you come in contact with over the last couple of days? And he says, well, there's Mary, there's Sue, and there's Jimmy who I work in the office with and Teresa, the receptionist in the outer office. So definitely those four. But you know what? I, I was all through the building, but you know what? Our building has video cameras all over the place. How about if we look at the video, this is Bob speaking. How about if we look at the video and I can tell you who I came in contact with and the CDC investigators say, well, we have the video. We've looked at the video. We see who you came in contact with. We don't know who everybody is, but we need you to tell us. And I was going to say, well, why can't I look at the video? That's it's kind of a, a almost a laughable analogy, but that's when we're not showing video to an officer to help refresh their memory, and that's the purpose of it. Then, then we're actually putting ourselves in a bad position. I mean, that that's my feeling about video evidence. And the same, to me, applies to a critical witness. And I've done that with critical witnesses. If I have video and I'm interviewing them and they're struggling and they're saying, you know what, I don't I don't recall, I don't want to guess, but I think it was, if I have some video, Mrs. Johnson, I'm going to say this video here and maybe you can kind of, maybe that'll help you. Oh, oh, my God, Lieutenant, you know what? That's, did you see me by the That's me by the tree. And now now I remember, it's a home run.
2: Yeah, can I, I I'm going to jump in here before Laura does, because I, I actually want Laura <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, I need a break. No, um, no, because I want, I want Laura's opinion on this. And we kind of touched on this in, uh, on the phone yesterday. I, what I always say in my classes is, and again, I'm not in any way, shape or form an expert in this, but I don't think there is. I, one. Um, I used to say I was 100% for officers looking at their videos. Then I dropped to 75% and then down to 60 and now I'm at 51 49. 51 2. Look at the video. I agree with everything you said, Steve. Everything. Everything you said. Here's the only issue I have to admit has got some validity. And the Daigle group, uh, who are very pro law enforcement, um, uh, are different than me. They think different than me on this. But what what we train officers, the Grand Burst counter decision, We train officers is this. You're going to have to articulate what was going on in the moment. Why did you use force? What were your perspectives? What was your perception? What were you seeing? What were you feeling? What were you hearing in that moment? And we now we've already established that you're going to get tunnel vision. You're going to get some kind of auditory exclusion because you have selective attention going on. Uh, If you watch your video, it could change that unique perspective. It could. Absolutely. Now, the reason I'm still for it is because if you don't let the officer see it and they have some inconsistencies, attorneys, whether they're plaintiffs attorneys or if you get charged, prosecutors are going to jump all over this. The public will, the media will, the activists will. And maybe, and not maybe, I know some bosses have and said, well, the use of force wound up being good, but he lied about what happened because his video was different, so we fired him. Um, so since I don't trust the process, I think what we should still do is let them look at their video because it does everything that that uh, Steve just said. But we also have to have our, our officers, our investigators, and, and certainly our administrators trained to understand why there is going to be some inconsistency between the video and that wide field of vision that you get from a video. And I can't remember the numbers, but, you know, a camera can pick up 30 to 60 data points a second, and the human eye can pick up like 16 to 20 data points a second, whatever it is. Um, So the video is going to see more than the officer, officer will recall. But on a flip of that, the officers will see things that the video won't pick up at all. So, Laura?
3: This is such a difficult question. <laughs> it is so difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's funny because when I talk about this subject, uh, you know, I limit it to, you know, maybe five minutes because I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. But what I do say, and, and I think is a truthful statement, is there are basically two, two, two uh, fields of thought. To allow the officers to see the video and then to not allow the officers to see the video. And then there's been some massaging of of, uh, the two camps as to um, allowing the officer to see the video, but after he gives his initial statement. Um, I'm not an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination. All I can do is tell you from my experiences, if we're searching for the truth... And, and, and I mean, that's a huge if, because these other agendas always get in the way, always. Whether it's uh, election time, whether it's to appease the community, whether it's to um, uh, it's part of uh, uh, continuing corruption in a, in, in a specific agency, there's always an agenda. Typically, there's an agenda. But if we're searching for the truth, you know, I, I don't see the harm based on my personal experience. And, and by the way, when I talk about my personal experience, you, you know, I've represented police officers in the immediate aftermath here in the state of Illinois, um, you know, dozens of times. I don't know, it was 50, 70, you know, officer-involved shootings. But so all I have is is my own personal experience and and of course, you know, um, the 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 teachings of of the scientific experts. Um, But if we're searching for the truth, I have found in my personal experience that it does help. It does help. But on the other hand, if um, the agenda is to somehow find the officer criminally liable or civilly liable and we want to catch him in a lie, then, you know, perhaps the officer may be required to give a statement first And then, you know, during that interview, the officer is shown the video for the first time without having an opportunity to review the video um, with his attorney or experts. Um, And then all of a sudden he's caught off guard and is like, oh, my God, that's not how I, I remember it. This is totally different. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then before you know it, the officer just doesn't know how to react because the science dictates that the officer's memory may differ from what's in the video. A video is never, ever, 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 ever the officer's perception. That much I do know. It's never, ever the, the officer's perception. So, you know, I understand that there are certain groups that um, advocate that an officer should never see the video because it taints the officer's memory. Well, right now, what you're watching, you're, you're seeing me on a screen, and your memory just based on your upbringing, your biases, whatever, your environment is already tainted. Even though, you, you know, what you're seeing is is happening, you know, live, your memory is your already, memory. already tainted in, in some aspect. So um, the argument that an officer reviewing a, a, his video um, will taint his memory. Well, yeah, it, it may, you know, I can't disagree with that, but everybody's memory is tainted once, the activity takes place and, and it's hard to articulate, you know, cause I'm not a scientist. I'm just an attorney, you know, that puts the experts, you know, the police officers, the scientists and, and uh, video people together, you know, I'm like a, a, a maestro and, 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 you know, I, I, I put the concert together, but, uh, um, but what I'm trying to say is there really are two camps when it comes to this um, thinking of allowing officers to see the video or, or not um and i think we need to explore that more um you know i i can't say one camp is right or or not um but it, it is out there and we need to be aware of that so jim you do bring up a very very valid point
2: let,
4: let me say this too laura and, and exactly and i think our the septa which is our transit union police officers here in philadelphia i think that was one of the sticking points in their contract is that their union or their um agency wanted to basically be able to sanction them or whack them is the term I use if they are interviewed and then they're shown the video to clarify some things if they don't comport with what they said. And, and absolutely, you're like, you just said, Laura, you're never going to get the exact memory, right? So these guys to their credit said, no, this is, that's ludicrous. We're not signing the contract for the very reasons you just stated. And and let me give you an example. When I was said about now I show video if I'm interviewing an officer and I did it, um, pre pre the the new format when I was the, uh, at the OISI. So it would have been one of the last investigations at Internal Affairs. And the circumstances were this. It was a um, the call comes out for a large fight on the highway, multiple 911 calls, three officers in plain clothes and an unmarked car are the only to respond. They respond to the location. As they get there, one of the officers, who will be the discharging officer, he's the only one of the three, he sees a male with a knife stabbing another male that off, all three officers are getting out of their car. At this point, the one officer who's fumbling, trying to get his gun out. Now the guy with the knife who's done stabbing the male, he was stabbing is moving in the direction of the officer who's fumbling with his gun. This charging officer get, has his gun out already, by the way, he's been involved in two prior shootings. And so studies show us that those involved in a shooting are going to be quicker to shoot. And it kind of makes sense. He's already prepared. He's been behind the eight ball before. He fires multiple rounds. The, the the person is pronounced deceased, falls to the ground, drops the knife. We have video of the entire event. During the course of the event, the discharging officer, because now this large crowd is coming out, he's got his gun trained on the male on the ground who he still doesn't know. Nobody's able to check him yet. There's people all over the place. The officer does a combat tactical magazine reload. And for those watching who don't know what that means is he drops his magazine that is in the gun at the time of the shooting and he inserts with a spare magazine, which is now fully loaded. So now he's got a fully loaded gun. This guy's tactically sound. He's looking around. He's on the radio. He's covering everything. When I'm interviewing him with this case, it was a couple months after the incident. I don't show him the video. I don't show him the video at all. And if I don't need to show an officer video, then I don't need to do it. But in this case, I'm almost at the end of the interview, and I say to him because I know there's other readers who are going to be looking at his interview, not just Steve Nolan, the police officer. I want him to explain to me why he did the combat reload. So I say, I said, officer, uh, tell me about the combat reload that you get. You did. And the officer goes like this, combat reload? I didn't do a combat reload. And I said, yeah, you, you did. It's on the video. He says, nah, lieutenant, I didn't do a combat reload. So now I show him the video. He's clear as day. He did a combat reload. Now, why did, oh my God, Lieutenant, you could have told me you were going to give me a million dollars if I got that answer right. Why does he not remember that? Because as we learned in force science, disassociation, that was not the most important thing to him in that event. The most important thing to him was the person with the knife, the threat. So some of those things got excluded from his mind. But as Laura talked about and somebody else, a prosecutor could look at that or the administration in the police department could look at that and say, oh, he's lying. You asked him the question. And he said he didn't do a combat reload. And sure enough, he did. We got to whack this guy. That combat reload had nothing to do with the shooting. It was after the fact. It was something he did because he's being tactically sound. But if we're using video for that purpose, then we're not we're using it wrong. So that's my point. If that comes across right
2: and, yep. and, and some bosses are using this, Some chiefs are using huh. this oh, yeah. as an excuse since uh, it, the video looks bad to the naked eye, to the civilian eye, to an untrained yeah. eye. They take a lot of heat. Investigators come in and go, oh, good use of force. Yeah, but that didn't match. So I got an excuse to get rid of this guy. And that's exactly. that, that, that's that's very, very scary. That's very scary. Right.
0: Before we before we jump too much farther into this right now, um, I just want to let everybody know who's on the live show. Um, we have twenty three people on right now. We are going to be doing a live giveaway. Um, Caliber Press is going to be giving away access <laughs> to one of their uh, one of their shows around the country or shows one of their
2: training training shows. It's <laughs> 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 a show,
1: sure. right? <laughs>
2: Um, up mostly,
0: yeah, pretty much. Uh, access to one of their training courses. Um, so there's 23 people on. If you all send an email to showhost at dot Ca right now, um, we'll put you in the list, and then Jim will pick a number, and we'll uh, we'll draw, and we'll get you guys free training. So that's pretty cool. Uh-huh. That's only going to happen to the people that are on this one uh, officer involved shooting. Roundtable. So uh, can, just- can
3: can yeah. can we can we participate, Adam?
0: <laughs> I'm going to send you something special, or I'll, I'll send you a care package.
2: I'll tell you, what, Adam. Adam, let's uh, let's add a Street Survival book to that too.
0: So, signed, a um, signed Street sure. Survival book. Yeah, there you okay. go. Okay, perfect. A Bible. <laughs> yeah. Now the emails are rolling in. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Sorry to cut you off, but I just want to let everybody know uh, so that they can do that. Chris, what do you Chris? What are your thoughts when it when it comes to when it comes to this kind of stuff from from the officer perspective? Um, like, what what was your experience with this?
1: Um, we didn't have them uh, at mine, but I'll tell you, looking at the the incident photos after the uh, period of time, uh, investigations concluded and everything, I'm looking at the photos. There's so many aspects that. I didn't recall they're not in my notes I, I don't recall seeing it um simple things like christmas decorations that were strung up in the uh in the premises it completely blanked out of my memory and then somebody said well, what about the decorations that would have been nothing right i remember clearly you know my actions how i got from point a to point b how i set up uh it was during a hostage rescue so uh, i knew where the hostages were and everything. but you know, the description of it afterwards, like any of the, uh, you know, like the furniture for the most part, yes, but I uh, couldn't have figured out, you know, types of furniture, but the the decorations were the big thing. And I'm looking at the photos going, why are those there? And it's like, <laughs> duh. Uh, obviously, because, you know, the time of the year and everything, but at the time, nothing, nothing.
2: You know, there's, uh, I mean, it, what, what drives me nuts, and I'm trying to be as professional as I can. When, when people who should know better and are in positions to know better deny that human factor science exists, um, I'll tell you my head spins uh, because you, you, you get it every day. You, I mean, how often have you seriously been in an argument with your spouse and 30 seconds into the argument, you're arguing about something you just said. And you can't even agree on if you said it or not. You know, it's um, you know, true, right? Right? You know, and I said it to Lisa all the time. My wife, I go, I didn't say that word. That's one of your words. I wouldn't have used that word, <laughs> word Jim. I'm going to start taping all our conversations. The proof, you, know, you know that, you know. You know, she's probably right. I don't know. I, I stopped listening. Anyway. Um, but uh, but I'll, tell you, I'll tell you some really, you know, some interesting things on like what Chris just said and the shooting I was involved in. Um, uh, what we did is we we simply knocked it. And the only reason I went is we had a shoplifting, which is nothing. You know, we have a big mall in town. We have shoplifting like every twenty minutes. You know, but we had a rookie car and uh, somebody walked into a, a store, took a bottle of vodka off the top shelf, just walked out with it. They got his license plate. I told, I told Joey, I, up, I think he was on his own for two weeks. I said, be careful with this guy. You know, um, he says, no, no, no. Look, I ran him. He's 57 years old. You know, like he should already be dead anyway. You know, um, he's got no real criminal history. So he's, he's nothing. But the thing is, is he, you know, took the bottle off without trying to hide it. And I said, eh, something, you know, something's up with this guy. So I happened to be on the street and I, I backed him up with another officer. And all we did was go up six floors and knock on the door. Like I've done 400,000 times, you know this is going to be nothing, you know, and uh, he opened a door and just started shooting uh, 57 years old. All he had was a DUI and a retail theft. And I had been teaching this since 1991. This happened in 2004. I started teaching with Calvert press in 2002. Um, uh, this is the stuff I trained. And um, when that gun came out and Harvard, and Harvard, 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 Harvard said it's pretty interesting. One of their studies that you can have three or four thought processes within the blink of an eye, which is about 2100 of a second. Right. And the thing I remember almost more than anything else is when that gun came out and it was right at me, it was a snub-nosed revolver. And I thought, that looks like my grandfather's off-duty gun. And he started firing. And when I saw it, I moved and it shot. J- Jerry behind me got hit. But later on, so, you know, we move, Joey shoots, Jerry goes down, and, you know, he stops firing, he goes back in. So the whole thing, open the door, shoving the, the gun out. Firing it as fast as he can and back in with the door shut. Probably what? Three seconds. Hmm. So later on though, um, he wound up giving up. He, he stuck his hand back out. We fired at him again. Uh, he goes, Oh, you know, gave up, sort of gun out, did everything we said, Got on the floor If 10,000 cops show up. But I will tell you, um, and I didn't tell people this for a while. If we had a break in that apartment, and there were five guys, on that couch, different races, different ethnicities. I can tell you, and, and there were 10 guns there. I go, that's the gun. I couldn't have told you who was holding the gun. Mm. I remember if his hand was white, black, whatever. I remember the gun. And yeah. we, the three of us, remember different things that were said by us. Um, Jerry, like Jerry told me, I when I picked him up off the ground, he says, I came off of the ground. And I, I barely remember getting him up. So because I'm trying to think of three or four different things at this moment, you know. And, and and I'll tell you my my, my best story here. Um, uh, this just take me a couple of minutes. If you want to give these guys a chance to stretch and <laughs> <laughs> like I do every time Laura talks. Uh, <laughs> um, we have something called uh, battle tested uh, uh, guest speakers, and they come to uh, the Street Survival Seminars, and we usually have about a half a dozen a year that do this. Well, one of them is a, a is somebody I knew for years. years, very very quiet. Individual, former Marine, Cleveland police officer, and his name is Anthony Espada. Anthony Espada, and uh, he's a friend of mine. Uh, we we have flown him all over the country to tell his story. Anthony was the first person in the house in Cleveland uh, where they discovered those three girls who had been kidnapped and held captive for ten years. And Anthony. Um, had been in a lot of wild stuff in his life. He was in the, he was in the Marines, and so when they got the call uh, on this, he actually said to his partner in the car, "If this is another joke, somebody's going to get arrested." Something to that effect. He was pissed. He goes because we were always getting these these things, and they had pictures of two of the girls. Um, you know the uh, the pictures where they bring a an artist to come in and um, I'm losing the word, but what they would look like at this age, you know? So they were very, very, very aware of two of these girls. So when they get to the door and you can see it on video, um, at least part of it on video is that uh, they couldn't get in the front door. And a bigger officer who I also know stepped in and boom, they hit the door and they were able to get, they were able to get into, into the door and Anthony goes in and a female officer follows him. In, and she's right behind him. And he starts walking up steps. The other officers go in and clear the, the ground floor. Well, the girls wind up, the two girls left there are upstairs, right? So Anthony says, and we're write, I'm writing another book on this, and it's it's in this book. Anthony says, I could hear the wood underneath my feet creaking as we walked up the stairs. I could f- hear and feel my, my partner <coughs> behind me. I could see. I could see and hear certain sounds upstairs. I could see the light coming out of a room, and then finally, one of the girls uh, comes out and um, runs up to him and jumps on him. And he tells the story, and you cry every time you hear it. and her Her legs her go leg. down. she run away, and she's saying in his ear, "You saved me! You saved me!" Yeah, and then he Try gives
1: this girl.
2: he gives this girl to uh, his female partner. Then the second girl comes out, and they get her outside. Very, very, very emotional. And he's sitting outside sweating and he's thinking about everything that just happened. And I mean, his mind is blown. Um, and one of the detectives comes up to him and said to him, how could you hear yourself think in that house? And he goes, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, the stereo was on full blast. We couldn't even turn it down because he had rigged it. So you couldn't turn it off. We had to literally pull it away from the wall and cut the wires or whatever it was they did to shut the sound off. Anthony has no recollection of hearing that music. He heard the wood underneath his feet creaking, but he does he did not hear the music from the stereo. stereo. That's massive selective attention, right? He's looking up the stairs. He's trying to hear it. He He thinks there might, what if there's another guy in there? What if the guy is in there? He has no idea what's happening. So he's totally focused on whether he's got his partner. And as he hits every steer, he can hear it. And he's looking and he, all of that stuck in his mind. He did not hear the music at all. So when people say, well, that selective attention is pseudoscience, I I, I, no. yeah, I definitely know.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, okay. it's amazing what sure. you're... Your body and your mind will filter out Like if it's not important. It's it's gone. Get rid of it Um, even in in the moment um, The stuff that's irrelevant to your survival and In in progressing through this incident No longer matters to you, right? Uh, And once rounds have been fired um, You know we go through an auditory exclusion your tunnel vision everything else. I remember after uh, discharging my mp5 the was, uh, brass in the floor, uh, linoleum floor, and all I could sort of picture is those little wind-up monkeys with the little cymbals banging, because the brass was really loud. But here I am firing an MP5, no earplugs, none like that. Don't even hear it. it, it, it I, I could hear like the, the action cycling on, on the weapon, but it was like as if I'm just clearing it. And, but then the brass bouncing was really, really loud. And it was kind of bizarre.
0: All right, that concludes part two of the instructor's roundtable on officer-involved shootings. To check out part three, again, just click next in your app or on your player. Really excited that we could bring this to you in an audio format. I hope you're finding actionable and useful. So make sure to check out part three and finish off that conversation. And if you're finding this information useful and you want to get more, consider subscribing to the podcast. Really appreciate your love and support as always. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the podcast. Stay safe.